are back for another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line, talking with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers of the big screen, the small screen, writers, directors, producers, animators, production designers, costume designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, we talk to them all. And what is wrong with my headphones today? I'm having technical issues here, folks. Bear with me. All right, well, maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, very excited. For those of you who follow me on social media, on Twitter, Movie Shark D, or BTL Radio Show, or on Facebook, BTL Behind the Lens, BTL Radio Show, uh, or Debbie Lynn Elias. I have been talking about today's show for the past couple of weeks. I'm so excited that we're going to have joining us at the midpoint of the show, writers, creators, executive producers, Charlie and Vlaz, Parla Pen uh, Panides, the, the geniuses behind the new Netflix anime series, Blood of Zeus. It drops at midnight, 12.01, people. And I hope you have it in your Netflix queues because it is incredible. I love this series. I love mythology anyway. Um, I love action. And I like animation. And I love what Charlie and Vlaz do. I, fir I first met them back in 2011 for the film Immortals, which what was it about? mythology uh and that film actually gave us henry cavill who went on to be superman luke evans kellen lutz who went who played poseidon in that film then went and starred as hercules in another film uh just charlie and vlaz are amazing and i'm so excited they are the very first uh creators of an animated series or film to have live on the show. As you all know, I've spoken with many animators, many directors of animation uh, from Pixar, from Disney, uh, from the uh, How to Train Your Dragon franchise. But this is the first time we are going to have somebody live on the show talking about animation, creating for animation, and of course, the fact that this is a series. Um, and I'm already, re I'm ready for season two already. So Netflix, I want my season two. Uh, but before Charlie and Vlaz join us, uh, I'm also very excited about this film, Radium Girls. This is an amazing story. It is a true story. It is based upon, all right, and where did my notes go? All right, I knew I'd, I would lose a page somewhere. <laughs> it's probably sitting at home in the computer. Um, this is based on a true story. It is based on the true story. Uh, it's known as the Radium Girl case from the 1920s. Uh, it was the Friar case. Uh, these five women, Friar McDonald, Larice, Hussman, and Schaub, filed a lawsuit uh, against U.S. Radium. Because they were working there, as many other women were. And, the, and what they were doing, because radium, it, it glowed in the dark. So what better way to use it than to use it to paint numbers on, 
Oh, whatever you did, Pam, that's great. I can now hear. Woohoo! Um, yes, we're live, folks. <laughs> um, so the radium would glow in the dark. So what do they do? This was the rage is painting the numbers on the watch dials. So you have glow-in-the-dark watches. These were the very first glow-in-the-dark watches. Um, and But what was happening is the way that, and not just in Orange, New Jersey, but in other factories in the United States, this just happened to be the one where there was a, were some girls that were brave enough to come forward and take the bull by the horns and make a stand uh, that they weren't going to tolerate this anymore because what happened is from when they would paint and you see this play out in the film uh you have to lick the end of the paintbrush because the numbers you guys know you look at a watch those are tiny little numbers there and they're trying to paint them you know with very with great precision uh so they would lick the ends of the paintbrushes to make it into a tip You've done it thousands of times, the kid, with your watercolors, with your tempera paints. Some of us still do it when we play with paints. Um, but what would happen is you lick and dip, lick and dip. Your body is ingesting that radium. So they were all getting suffering from radium poisoning. They would go to a company doctor. Of course, the company doctor would cover it up. Uh, as it would come out in certain cases, the doctor was not really a medical doctor. Um, and things just went from bad to worse with people dying. And there were three sisters, one of whom who had died. And there were the other two were still working at the company. And the one got very, very ill. And the other sister, was, she had to do something for her family for herself, for her sister, and for all the other women. And she had gotten involved with some activists because here we are in the 1920s. It's the jazz era, and so much was happening. Women had gotten the right to vote just five years earlier. It was an exciting time politically, socially, and going from person to person, she ended up getting hooked up with um, an attorney, and the National Consumers League. And it just went from there. And the truth eventually did come out. Uh, the arguments in that case are still used and have been used for centuries, for decades now. Not centuries, for decades. Just feels like a century in 2020. <laughs> uh, used for decades with the Environmental Protection Agency, with a lot of litigation regarding the standards for environmental protections in factories and in general, uh, some of the standards for OSHA. A lot came out of this Friar case and the one uh, heard before it that settled, that never made it into the courtroom, Marguerite Carlo's case. Uh, but this film, we have Lydia Dean Pitcher, Prior film, A Call to Spy, which is out right now, folks. If you haven't seen it, it's another true story. It is about female spies when they finally came into the war for World War II and how they became a very integral part, an important part, in breaking down the Axis. Uh, she, but Lydia Dean Pitcher, she's well-known as a producer for Cutie, uh, Cutie and the Boxer, Queen of uh, Katwa, Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. 
But here she is. She is directing Radium Girls. Co-directing with her is Ginny Mahler, uh, who also is writer, her first feature. And what they have crafted is an incredible story told from the female perspective as an entree and boasting a wonderful cast of Joey King, Abby Quinn, Kara Seymour. Joey King and Abby Quinn are our two real protagonists. Joey King is Bessie, Abby Quinn is Sister Joe, And it's Bessie who has, anybody that watches Joey King and anything knows, Joey is always going to be the girl who's got the gumption and the, and the go-for-it attitude. And she does that here. The film is exquisite from cinematography to score, it, it, uh, Matthew Plainfossey is a cinematographer. You've heard me talk about him before, um, in my co- and I've spoken with Matthew before for his work on *The Iron Orchard* with Ty Roberts. Composer here is Lily Rebecca McDonough. Her work is exemplary. Um, so, because I want you to hear the entire, the entire um, interview, which means Charlie and Vlad may come on a couple seconds late. But without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Lydia Dean Pitcher and Ginny Moeller talking about the fabulous Radium Girls. Hi, Ginny. I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> no, we were just waiting for you. Yeah. <laughs> we're just gabbing. I was just telling Lydia how thrilled I am. Number one, I love the film. But to see this story come out... And and because I look at it, I also look at it with my lawyer's eye and the legal ramifications that came from this, from not only the Friar lawsuit, but Marguerite Carlo's suit uh, and then subsequent ones. And this is such an important story for people to know. And there have been books, there have been other things, but this is so engaging that the average layperson can understand the ramifications and the history through what you, the two of you have created and done. Because I have to tell you, the visuals, um, Matthew's visuals are absolutely amazing. The montages, your blend of archival, you bring in a whimsical score at times from, from Lily Rebecca McDonough, and yeah. it just draws everybody in you capture that hypnotic era of the 20s the jazz baby era and everybody kind of glamorizes that and you use that to bring people in and that is so smart and so effective and i love it oh thank you thank you that means thank the you. <laughs> yeah jenny because i know you you were the one the archivist digging through archives and i know how much fun that can be i also know the tedium that it can be and how much and how much soap you're going to go through afterwards so when covid came around no one had to tell you how to wash your hands uh, <laughs> that i'm sure <laughs> where do you how do you even amass the materials to distill this down into a workable screenplay. Did you go back to um, Kate Moore's book, the Radium Girls book that came out a few years ago? You know, where does all of this start with you once you dust off the dirt? Right, that's a great question. It it was really a 
labor of love, which for me is history and archives and women's history. The Kate Moore's book, actually, I believe that we that our film and Kate Moore was we were we were working on our stories about the Radium Girls at the same time. So her book didn't come out until after we were in post production. A incredible text that we did use as a reference point and as a jumping off place to start doing primary source research is a, a 1997 book called Radium Girls by Claudia Clark. It's Radium Girls, Women and Industrial Health Reform, mm-hmm. 1910 to 1935. It's a very academic text, but it really outlines especially a lot of, of the legislative picture as well as as the legal picture. And then from there it was Library of Congress and, and various um, archives that have since been digitized where, you know, reading reading the trial transcripts and and some of these firsthand accounts really is really powerful and also made us realize as screenwriters how cinematic this story inherently is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, obviously you're changing names to protect the innocent, um, some of whom were not so innocent. So how do you start breaking this down to structure this into the characters that we now see unfold? Uh, Bessie and Joe and Doris and, and Paula and the surrounding um, upper person, corporate personnel and others. Lydia, do you want to take that one? Well, I think, I mean, you, I mean, you, as a screenwriter, you speak best to it. But I, I will say that, you know, what really drew me to the story was the coming of age, you know, arc of it all. And the idea that you had these very innocent teenage girls, you know, working in this factory in Orange, New Jersey. and But they had big dreams, you know, Joe you know, dreamed of being an archaeologist, Bessie dreamed of being a Hollywood, you know, star. And, and those were those were um, dramatic licenses that Brittany Shaw, and who wrote the screenplay with Jenny, you know, took to create the worlds of these characters. But they had read the diaries of Catherine Shaw, and the, the diaries, her diaries were, you know, when you, when you, saw the sparkle in her character, in her voice, and you could see that there was this kind of irrepressible energy. You could see how Joey King could play that part. I mean, it was her, it was the essence of that character. And I think, you know, we, um, we you know, the character of Joe, her sister, was designed to be, um, you know, sort of a counterpoint and amalgam of, of other women of that era and their voices. And um, it was, you know, they, and they had such a, a chemistry together as actors and as characters, which is, a, which is a really wonderful thing to come to. But I think we started with that arc of these two sisters coming of age and then put it into the historical story of what happened. Mm-hmm. And then we had to take a step back and decide how do we build the world that they existed in and which, you know, how, what, what are the, you know, what, what's the tapestry that we want to weave around that. Mm-hmm. And you do a fabulous job. And I love the fact that, because ultimately we're really seeing this through Bessie's eyes. She becomes, mm-hmm. she becomes the quote unquote heroine here. Um, of wanting to forge ahead and 
you know, the doughy-eyed dreamer lusting over Val Rudolph Valentino, she's the one who now doesn't want to settle for anything but, you know, elimination of factories, elimination of radium. It's fascinating to watch that character change, but seeing this told primarily through her eyes is very powerful. And it keeps us focused on the end game yeah. here. It does. Bassi Cavallo is, she inspires me. She's fictional, obviously, based on real people. And, and she inspires me so much. And I think she's so, I think she's so relatable to anyone who's, who's had, you know, a political awakening, a social justice awakening, a, a coming of age um, where, you know, finding your voice. Um, and then I'll, I will say that, you know, early on in, in when we, as Brittany and I were deciding, Brittany, Sean and I were deciding how we wanted to adapt to the material because there's such a range and, and there's so much research that is available and there's, there's obviously different ways you could tell this story. And we thought about how often this story would be told from the perspective of, of their lawyer, mm -hmm. um, which is, I love courtroom films and, and there are many excellent films with the lawyer as the protagonist or, or someone like Catherine Wiley, who is, is this activist and part of this incredible network of, of female activists that empowers them. And we made a very conscious choice early on and we said, this is Bessie's story. This is Bessie and Joe's story. They are not the victims here. They are the, they are driving the story. They are the protagonists. And that really, that really comes through. And it comes through in the structure, but also in the visual design and in working with Matthew, um, who I fell in love with his work when I saw what he did with uh, Ty Roberts on the Iron Orchard. Um, but I'm curious how you develop, what were the visual influences? How did you come up with the visual tonal bandwidth and design here and incorporate all of these fabulous archival montages intermixed with with film that you cut of the girls um, to make it and then, you know, tone it back into black and white so it looks archival. You've got such a spectacular blend of fact and fiction here so it all become looks like fact. So where where did this start? How did you come up with this? Um, <laughs> okay, I'll say a few things and then Jimmy, you say two things. Um, okay. I mean, we both loved Matthew. He was a French cinematographer who had come to America because he wanted to shoot independent American independent films, and and he it, we, we caught him right at that moment. It was a special moment that we had somebody that was, you know, so interested in what we were doing. And I think Jenny and I both have kind of an, an art eye, you know, toward the world, and so did Matthew, and it just seemed like a great, um, a great collaboration. He's just, you know, he's very, he's just a very emotional and passionate person, and he brought that kind of emotional camera to, to, to you know, to the lens and to the story. And um, I think um, in terms of the archival, we were really, I mean, Jenny has this great, you know, great experience with archival footage and kind of had all of these great ideas about it. And then, but we wanted to think of how we could 
blend it. And so we um, came up, you know, we we're a small film. We came up with the idea of shooting some of our sort of um, some of our characters who are out there in the world connecting things like Edda, who's the black camera woman from Tulsa, mm-hmm. um, who's political. And we had um, we had another uh, political speaker, um, Thomas, and then we had a journalist um, who was played by Gemma Schreier, who is asking the Radium Girls questions on the courthouse. And we kind of blended them into some of the archival um, footage by shooting some black and white Bolex footage mm-hmm. with them, and it, it was a it was a really nice way to make the blend the world to make them feel, um, you know, fluid. Mm-hmm. You definitely achieved that. And what I also notice is with your archival footage, you really make it a point to show everything, all the politics that was happening. Um, you know, women had just gotten the right to vote a few years earlier. You bring in a lot of that. You bring in uh, protests you, and inventions, science. You really show us, not tell us, you show us what a turning point the 20s were for science, for politics. And it just it's, it couldn't be released more timely uh, than in 2020, I got to tell you. But it just works so well, and a lot. I can tell a lot of thought went into what you incorporated. As, as Brittany and I were writing the film, and we were both working as archival researchers, and we were working on documentaries that um, one, the, the film she was primarily working on was a, a civil rights special for the History Channel. And as part of the work that we were both doing, we were surrounded by the context of the 1920s. So we were not... Well, the story we were we were digging into with the Radium Girls story, we were also so aware of where it fit into the history of the 1920s. And like you said, it's you know often the entrance point is is the Jazz Age, is is the flappers and and um, the sort of more lighthearted side of history. You know, it's between the between the World Wars, mm-hmm. and so we just felt like making sure that 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 full picture was there was was so important to and I think like for for our time too and it is it is an important time to be talking about the story is you know you can't you can't separate you can't separate them um you can't separate what's happening it's none of it's happening in a a vacuum it's it's Mm -hmm. all informed yeah because I mean you even bring in there within the dialogue uh, you've got Bessie talking about, you know, Mount Rushmore, and then Walt saying, hey, you know, that's going to be on Native American lands, and the whole idea of pyramids, pyramids, you know, they were built, slave labor. Um, you bring all these little things in, it is, you know, we get the Mount Rushmore line, and I'm thinking, oh, God, and, you know, we're seeing that on the headlines. <laughs> <laughs> the headlines in here. So much of what you have in here, you guys are very prescient. Clearly, clearly, you understand that history repeats itself. Maybe not as much as it is now, as as it has, but you incorporate all these little factoids and all these little things from the time. So it's very educational on that level, along with 
the whole aspect of the Radium Girls story. And I just think that it just excites me to no end to see the detail and the meticulous nature of what you have done with this film. It just so, so well done. I, oh, thank you. I've got to ask you about working with Lily Rebecca McDonough on the score because oh. this score <laughs> yeah. is so, it's beautiful it's also magical with some of the instrumentation and arrangement that lily does with the composition so we get that whole that fairyland that magic dust the sparkle you can feel the sparkle of the radium in the music it's very interesting where and when this pops up in the film so i'm curious about the two of you working with her what you were looking for musically to add that final icing on the cake here? Well, I think, you know, Lily is obviously um, an enormous talent that we were really lucky to connect with. She had just come out of a, a, a screen scoring program at NYU, and we were, Jenny and I had felt like we really wanted to work with a female composer, and I don't know if you know this, Debbie, but it's one of the fields in our industry that women are, you know, more underrepresented oh. than than almost any other area. Very much um, so, yeah. And and there were a lot of men who very competent men who, you know, came forward and wanted to do the score, and they were really, you know, it was. I mean, it, they were definitely people. It would have been, you know, great to work with, but. When we met Lily, I mean, she, and you know, she did the score for Call the Spy also. Mm -hmm. So, but um, when we met Lily, I think what was really um, amazing is, first of all, she's incredibly versatile. And you could hear that in, in the body of work that she had created on her own to date. But I think she... You know, she really connected to these girls. It, I love that you just said that you could feel the sparkle of the radium in her music because I think, you know, all of everyone who sort of came to this project, you know, whether it was our production designer, our costume designer, still Sylvia Greiser, I mean, I mean, everybody felt really connected to these women and it comes through in their work. But just coming back to Lily, I think she has a very interesting relationship to, to sound and music and both sort of classical and um, sort of avant-garde ways and, and for, you know, to be making, you know, to be creating sort of, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of pieces of her score which aren't necessarily period, but they are very visceral in terms of the environment where the, where, where the girls were living and the factory and the sounds and she uses, you know, you, she put, she's the one who put like clanging pipes in her, um, in her soundtrack oh. <laughs> because it felt very factory-like mm -hmm. and, and yet she wove it into a very, um, into very sort of emotional melodies. So I, li I like that. I'm happy that you responded that way. Yeah, I, just, I love this score. I would like to have a soundtrack just of this score because it is so beautiful. <laughs> it, oh. It's so beautiful. So I'm, I'm curious, because you're both co-directing on this, how did you go about stepping in and divvying up directing duties here? I think it was, you know, because we were a small film we and we often you know we often had two units going it was 
you know, it was just kind of all hands on deck all the time. I mean, it was, you know, Jenny had written a script, and so she had really lived with these characters and her mind for a long time. And we, um, you know, we really, we really, you know, shot the movie in 20 days. So we really were every day just kind of figuring out, you know, how to how to share what the, you know, what our our uni- unified vision was, you know, when we when we set out. At the end of the day, now that everybody is about to get to see Radium Girls. What did each of you take away from the, you know, learn about yourselves as filmmakers, as directors, as a screenwriter? What did you learn about yourselves making this film that you can now take forward into future projects? And Lydia, for you, what you may have even taken into A Call to Spy, since I know you did that one after, after Radium Girls. I'll, I'll say something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is it's both a key theme in the film and, and also has been my experience um, as we've made the film over you know, the last eight years is, is this idea of community and um, and and the, I think, you know, anyone who <laughs> works in film knows how important it is to have, have um, people around you in the various roles in the film who are passionate and believe in the project and believe in you and you believe in them and how it is this experience of, of you know, really of um, this film was made possible by extraordinary people at every level. And for me, that I connect that to the, the story itself, which is a story of, of their voices are heard because of this extraordinary group of people of them and and the people who support them and the people who listen and the people who pause um and ask and ask more so i think um that's one big takeaway is like it's it's um it's a it's a powerful experience to um work so closely with like so um you know amazing talented people it's how it happens. And what about for you, Lydia? I, I guess, I guess I, one of the, and, and this is probably because I, you know, as you mentioned, I've, you know, also done another historical female-driven um, story in a different era, but I, I, I think that, you know, telling his, historical stories are very interesting in that, in that, you there isn't there is a there is an end to the story and but you kind of only understand the significance of it in retrospect and it's a fascinating thing to kind of step into the shoes of the main characters who in your in your movie and at the time that they existed they didn't know what the end of the story was going to be and what 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 then makes that fascinating for us as the audience is to really sort of see the choices and the dilemma and the uncertainty of everything that, you know, they were, that of those moments where they had to make decisions and, and not really knowing. Like the Radium Girl, it, it didn't, you know, they didn't, Joe, Joey's character, Bessie, was so, you know, that scene in the settlement office, you know, mm-hmm. with the judge and their lawyer and all the girls and they're having to make that decision to do the settlement. I mean, that, you know, for her, that was heartbreaking and Wiley sort of 
says, I tell you what I've always learned is that it never ends. But then, you know, we're able to kind of put this whole story in retrospect into a bigger picture mm -hmm. that makes us be able to tell something about their story that even Bessie wasn't able to know at the time. Mm -hmm. And it, I think I, I really love that. I, I really love the ability to, you know, take an audience on a, a kind of an immersive journey in that way. But we have, we do, we can look at it through a different lens now. And that means that we, we can take something away from it, um, informed by our own experiences. Well, and, and thankfully, this is a story that future generations have gone on to learn from in many respects in terms of workplace safety and the dangers of radium and and you think about how many lives these girls actually did end up have saved over the decades yeah i mean i think um i mean i think that it's a it's such a it's it's such an intense tragedy their story that it um that you you know you kind of i, I think people as they're in in so many people are telling us that you know they've never heard the story before. So I think that I think that that's that's part of the story. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Lydia, Ginny, thank you. This has been such a delight, such a joy talking to both of you about a film that oh. I absolutely love. I can, thank you so much for taking oh, the time to talk you. to me. It's wonderful to meet you and talk to you. Uh, I hope yeah, next thank you so much. I hope next time we will get to actually meet face-to-face -face in the same room talking about a film. Yes. Yes, that yes. would be great. And that was my exclusive interview with the wonderful Lydia Dean Pitcher and Ginny Moeller talking about Radium Girls. It is actually in theaters across the country, limited, obviously, not in Los Angeles County. Uh, so find it, find it, find it, and it is on some other platforms as well. It is a win-win movie. And now we're going to bring the boys live. Pam has them. All right. Are you there? Are 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 the guys there? You got Hi. You got you got us both, Debbie. Oh my God! Hello, Vlaz. <laughs> Hello, Charlie. Hi. I'm. Hi. Thank you so much for having us on. I am so thrilled to have you guys on. So thank you thrilled. for having us. Uh, the pleasure is ours. And I, you are my first live guest talking anime. We, we really appreciate right. that, Debbie. We truly do. And uh, we think this is a genre that a lot of the kind of uh, entertainment media is sleeping on. And uh, we think we're kind of the tip of the spear for a, a movement that's coming. There's a lot of big projects coming out behind ours. Uh, and so we really appreciate you having us on. It really means a lot to us. Oh, uh, well, you know, number one, I w I'll talk to you guys about any project that you do. You know that. <laughs> Um, we became fast friends, you know, nine years ago with Immortals. I know. I know. It's amazing how fast it yeah. goes. Oh, I, I can't believe it's been nine years. Um, yeah, it's five. And, I mean, I still, I will watch Immortals. And I actually, I have to admit, I think of you guys every day because on my keychain, the swag they gave us at the press day, was it's a 
bronze or brass, immor- really heavy immortals keychain that's a that's a <laughs> oh, bottle that's opener. Great. And that is what I have my house keys on. <laughs> and, Love that. And the bottle opener comes in very handy. Oh, that's great. That was well thought out. They did a good job with They had some good swag for Immortals, I have to say. Yeah. They did a great job with that. But that was my, uh, one. that truly, I think, is one of the best pieces of swag I've gotten in 34 years. Um, <laughs> it's heavy. It fits just right when you wrap your hand around it and you need to hit somebody. It just it fits really well, but it's that bottle opener, man. That That's the key. <laughs> hey, listen, in 2020, we need it more than ever. So, so, I mean, uh, but so every day I think of the two of you when I open my door. <laughs> uh, well, but, we're very grateful, grateful for that and, and grateful that you're having us on your show. And as Charlie mentioned, too, this is a growing genre and some very big names are, you know, participating in anime i it just you know zach snyder zach snyder yep. has a, an anime coming out kevin smith the russo brothers another fellow jersey kevin guy smith. Mm-hmm. no it just it yeah. just amazes me uh because so often when people think of anime they think of uh, uh miyazaki they think of J- uh, japanese animation yeah they don't associate it with graphic novels coming to life um, yeah. yeah, they think of animation as cartoon, even even right. Pixar and Disney animation, because it's it's cute, fun characters. They yeah. don't real, and even you look at Hercules or Aladdin in the Disneyfied versions, and it's still they're they're, yeah. they're cute. And listen, mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. nobody's better at that than Disney. What they do, they're amazing. But I think you're spot on, you know, Debbie. When when people think of, of even anime um, and animation, they always think of it, especially here in the West, as being more kind of kid-centric or mm-hmm. child-centric. Or I think we all have fond memories of Saturday morning cartoons, and, and that's immediately where people's kind of mind's eye goes to. Um, but, you know, in Asia and in the East, you know, they make these animes and these animated cartoons, and they're for older audiences, for the 15th of, you know, 55-year-old audience. Like, you know, that is a demographic they they kind of, you know, make this content for. And that's kind of more in the vein of what uh, Blood of Zeus is, is aiming at, what we're aiming at with this, and, and what Netflix has done with Castlevania, which has been a very successful show for them, which is also anime, but definitely not for young kids. Like, I would never let my daughter watch, you know, Castlevania um, so it's it's it is something that is kind of still new here uh, in America. Well, I hope it doesn't stay new for long because we need more. <laughs> I'm ready for season two of Blood of Zeus, boys. Oh, oh thank awesome. you. I am ready as soon as I finished episode eight. Oh, I was. I, it's like okay, I need season two. I need season <laughs> two. Um. You know, I'm. I love mythology. I love Greek mythology. I love Roman mythology, and from those mythologies, we've seen. You know, you see the tie-ins to, to Marvel Cinematic Universe and Thor, <laughs> and Odin, um, Wonder Woman. All of these. So true. All of these mythologies harken back to 
the Greeks and the Romans, and the Greeks and the Romans can still battle it out as to whose came first. Um, (laughs) Greek mythology, Romans, like we always say, you know, there's this saying, una fata, una rasa, you know, like one face, same race. Like uh, we and the Italians are very close, but uh, but but it's it's a it's a you're spot on, Debbie. What we've always said is that the language of Greek mythology is very much the language of superheroes, mm-hmm. and even even if just some of the terminologies are a little different, but like they had the first, you know, the Olympians, we always say were the first superheroes. Yep. And they had arch enemies. They were called Banes back then. You know, I think arch enemies maybe or a nemesis is like a cooler term. But each Olympian had a bane, an arch enemy that, you know, that was always trying to kill them. And, and I think that's why not only is it just this rich body of kind of stories, and the characters are also very human because they're anthropomorphic gods. They're gods that are flawed and, and have problems and backstories. Um, but it is very much the, the, the language of superheroes, which we see today, you know, dominate popular culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And... You know, I always laugh um, whenever there's a discussion about who, you know, is it Greek or is it Roman? My Latin teacher in high school, she truly believed she was a reincarnated Roman. She truly believed this, guys. I kid you not. Um, But she was so passionate. And the love I had for mythology already, that just made it grow even more. And just to be very... Just to be clear, though, it was the Greeks first. Let's just be honest. <laughs> All right. Oh, okay. I'll give. They, I look. I've always suspected. <laughs> I've always suspected, especially since the Greek gods, the 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 god mythology, the Greek god mythology started with. Okay, let's face it. He's having. He's come back and he's having a field day now. Chaos. <laughs> Um, That's the beginning. That's the very beginning. It all started with chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And And if you know anything about the Greek psyche, that is the absolute right choice, because we always start with chaos. But that is the very beginning. (laughs) We still have it in our everyday life. But also, too, they're, they're very rich. Both are very rich cultures, and the mythology is very rich. I, sorry, I don't know if I... If I jumped on someone, but um, I, I remember also being and seeing, you know, the Colosseum for the first time, and I just remember being in awe of it. And so there's something to be said, no doubt, about, you know, the, the Roman culture, and it's very rich, and we're also very proud of the Greek culture, obviously. But, you know, what is, this is not the kind of thing that's, because this is, once you get into mythology, because of all the, this one is sleeping with that one, and this one is a god, and this one is a demigod, and this one is pissed off. And as we all saw in Jason the Argonauts, Zeus and Hera have major issues. Um, they are not a marriage made in heaven, let's face it. Um, but so it is so complex. I mean, I think it's safe to say mythology is more complex than watching a season of the Kardashians. But, uh, but what is it that inspired the two of you? Because your first big feature was Immortals. And that's, it's mythology. You've got Poseidon. You've got Zeus. You've got Mickey Rourke being Mickey Rourke. Um, but what is it that spoke to the two of you that made you both sit down and say, hey, we're going to write, we're going to create, we're going to do it together and not kill each other as brothers. 
And we're going to start with mythology. It was Charlie's idea, and so I think that you can speak to it better than I can. Well, the, the one thing I'll say that, you know, last night we always say we're very blessed. We get paid to sit in a room with each other and make stuff up, and everyone should be so lucky. And because we came from a big Greek family, uh, an immigrant family growing up at the Jersey Shore, our, you know, our family, we had a diner, we had a hot dog stand on the boardwalk at the Jersey Shore, we had a parking lot. We all grew up working these family businesses. So for us, like working together and family, you know, that we've always done. And, and thank God we've always just been all super close and, and gotten along. All of us siblings, are, we have four of us in total. And then Greek mythology is just something that we've just always had a passion for. Um, you know, and I think it, it comes, some of it comes back to, you know, just when you talked about having, you know, kind of it imprinted by a, a great teacher. Like I remember when we were younger, before any of us went to college, we would go spend summers in Greece. Um, and, you know, because it's so hot there, they kind of have like the siesta where everything shuts down. And, and one year I had a book. I'd gotten a book, I don't know if, you know, maybe I picked it up at the airport or just there at the local market, just during those siestas, I would just read it, and I was just like, I was just fascinated by this world, it was everything, you just wanted to escape into it, and then, you know, being in Greece, and then sometimes going around and seeing some of these places that are described in these stories, it just made this indelible mark on me, um, so I think that's why, and Vlasov always loved it, to watch you know, Jason and the Argonauts with our father, and even though it's not Greek mythology, like Sinbad or the original Clash of the Titans, and we just loved those movies growing up. And so for us, we're just what I would... thrilled that we could work in the sandbox. We're very lucky in that way. Sorry, bro. No, 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 sorry. And, and what I would add to that, what we, really, what we really wanted to lean into in this particular story is the fantastical element. We remember... When we were children, we were told these stories, and we had that wonderment and awe and the excitement of these stories, and we wanted to imbue that into this show. So this show, in, in the best way, is an escapist-type show and fair where you're brought into a world, and you're made to laugh, to cry, you're inspired, and it kind of affords people this opportunity to to kind of be removed from their everyday life. And we feel now with the pandemic and everything that's going on, that'll be something that's very welcoming. And so we love big movies that do that, shows that do that. Lord of the Rings does that. Star Wars does that. And, you know, imbuing people with that sense of hope while also entertaining them. And, you know, hopefully also sharing something positive with them as well at the very end there. Well, I've got to ask you, how do you have a different approach? Here you are. You have immortals. You're looking at the gods. You didn't get to cast the gods, but casting did a good enough job on those on those guys. Um, <laughs> but here you are, Blood of Zeus. It's episodic, roughly 30 minutes. Some are 26 minutes. Some are 32 minutes. Mm-hmm. And... They go by so quickly. I have to tell you this. They, each episode is so action-packed that they, it goes by so quickly, and all of a sudden, it's, uh, my Netflix queue was moving to the next one, and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I watched them all at one time. Binge, did you straight binge through, Debbie, the whole, the whole show? I did, and I will even confess to you, oh. I did not even take a pee break. Okay? <laughs> I would only do that. I would only do that for 
people down the shore. What can I say? Oh. Um, <laughs> The we're going to have to cast you in, in one of our shows or movies. We're going to have to put you in. Maybe we'll make you the Oracle. <laughs> I'd be a good Oracle. Uh, <laughs> that's impressive because it's like four and a half hours. Yeah. That's four hours and 20 minutes. That's that's a real stretch. That's great. And while I, and I, I'm, you're probably, you're not watching, but, um, for those that might be watching on the face on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream, I have, and I'm holding them up now, 28 pages of notes that I took while I was watching. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Broken down by episode, characters, um, notable oh. elements like the scoring. So what I'm really curious with, with Blood of Zeus, because you didn't just write this. It's not like you wrote a script and somebody bought it and you got your check and you went, Bye. You guys are, you're the creators, you're the writers, you're executive producers on this. How do you approach, first of all, is approaching anime different than a narrative film, live action film? Second, second of all, hand in hand with that, it's episodic. Uh, I know, for example, Taylor Sheridan with Yellowstone, he approaches the entire show as one long movie it's cinematic yeah, and it's approached cinematically from the cinematography to production design to composing everything it's approached as a feature film and i'm seeing that with a lot of these really these incredible series that are coming out now but we, we did approach it go ahead go ahead no, we, we did approach it as, as a movie. Um, the mandate from the very beginning, we had this conversation conversation with Sean um, Goshian, who was our director and did a brilliant job. And, and one of the things that we all decided that we were going to try to do is to make this as cinematic as possible. So the fact that it comes off as being very cinematic and the fact that it comes off as being you know, a long movie, that was something that was premeditated. And that stems from, I would say, the direction. It also stems from the score. Paul Francis did a fantastic job with the, with the score. And it was something that was a conscious effort, even from the actors. We, we told the actors the mandate was to bring that emotional truth, that sense of grounded and realism that they brought to their work. We wanted that to be in the performances of the show as well. Mm-hmm. Now, how involved, you know, did you write this all as one big, long movie? Did you start chapterizing it, breaking it out into episodes? Because, and the episodes are so perfectly, perfectly named. A Call to Arms, Past is Prologue, The Raid, A Monster is Born, Escape or Die, Back to Olympus, Fields of the Dead, which I love, um, War for Olympus. Um, and then it's like, then I have blanks for another season. Uh <laughs> but it is so perfectly designed for, and the way that each individual episode is structured, where it picks up, we don't get the opening titles until about seven minutes in. Then every episode, the Blood of Zeus title is done differently from an animation standpoint <laughs> And the animation and the color and the texture and finish 
of the lettering and even the sound of the opening titles is in tune with that particular episode. That's great. I'm glad you got that. That's, That's a great, great that you picked that up. Oh, you my. Know, one thing, sorry, well, I, I just want to say, and I love that you picked that up, and, and it's so true, and, and a couple other critics have also picked that up and, and really appreciate it. What, what, what I'm so very proud of with the show, there's many things, but one of the things that was the attention to detail. Mm-hmm. And so everything that's in it, there was a lot of thought put into anything and everything. And, you know, that stems from the director, from us, from everyone involved. And the other beautiful thing, working with this group, it was always, there was an ego. There was no ego involved. It was always best idea wins. What's in the best interest of the story? And that was always at the forefront. And we were involved creatively the whole way through. And that was very rewarding from inception of idea all the way to the end. So I'm glad that you picked up on, you know, the, the, the titles and all these little, little nuanced um, elements of the show that we really did try to put a lot of thought into and try to be creative. Well, and it follows through even with the color. With the color, and I, I say it a lot with narrative films, the visual tonal bandwidth. And each one of these episodes is very specific uh, in the visual tonal bandwidth. We may have one episode that is, it's a wash in red, uh, you know, a deep red, a burning orange. We have another one, the, uh, the Fields of the Dead. We have beauty, and then we have not so beautiful, because we've got River Styx. And who's, <laughs> who's crossing the River Styx? Um, and as a matter of fact, you get, I had one cat for over 16 years and his name was K-Ron. And why was his name K-Ron? Because, because he, K-Ron is the God that would decide whether you cross the river Styx or not. And when (laughs) I, when I got my cat, he was a tiny little kitten and he was with my older cat who they made this quick connection. And then the older cat died. And I was convinced he transferred his soul. I said, K-Ron, that's it. I have to have this kitten. And it's because of mythology. So. I love that. That gave me chills. I love that. So It's so funny you mentioned just even something like that, Debbie, because the one thing I do think and why we were very blessed is that this wasn't just a passion project for us. It was a passion project for everyone all the way down the line. Like when we started um, hiring board artists, uh, you know, mm-hmm. basically, like, you know, Powerhouse is amazing, but it's, it's not Warner Brothers or DreamWorks. And because of, you know, people read the scripts, they saw some of the initial design work, there were people that left steady jobs at Warner Brothers and at DreamWorks and at big animation studios yeah. to come work on this because they said, listen, what you guys are trying to do with this, this is the kind of project I've always wanted to be involved with. And I'm willing to leave a steady job for basically what is a freelance job, you know, mm-hmm. We made the show, and now, you know, depending on how viewership goes, the first 30 days of release, we'll find out whether we get a second season, but there's no guarantee. Right. So people that were leaving jobs at Fox and other big studios, you know, they were really, you know, taking a gamble, but it's because they love this project. And then we all would just work together. And as Voss mentioned, it was always best idea wins. And we would sit and talk. And the interesting thing coming from kind of physical production where, you know, you show up, there's a set, and of course you have, you know, your production designers and costume designers, and everyone's had these conversations and thoughts beforehand. 
with animation, you're literally just dealing with a blank page. Yep. And so we would sit with the director and the different board artists, and we would talk about every sequence and every scene. And we, and you know, and it's amazing. And I wish every writer in the world would have this experience to work with a director like Sean because he's so talented as an artist. We would just start going through a script, and he would just go up to the whiteboard and start to draw it. <laughs> to lay out geography like we did one pass where we just talked about the geography of every episode and then we did another pass about you know what's what are the most important emotional beats here and and it was just a great process because you're always kind of just digging in deeper and cultivating it and so it was just a great process and we loved writing 22 page scripts that was like (laughs) it it was like I, i honestly we we had finished the scripts and we had recorded the voices and the board artists had begun working and we ended up getting uh, an open writing assignment uh, on a feature. And when we were writing that, you know, kind of during the process of Zeus getting animated, I remember we got to page 50 on that feature, and it felt like we were running a marathon with a piano on our back. I'm like, Vloss, why is this so hard? Because, so? you know, for the, a year we were just writing 20-page scripts. Um, so that format was just new and interesting, and we said we're going to have a beginning, middle, and end of each episode, but it's all going to be connected in this bigger story. And so it was just really fun to work in that format. And we always knew where we wanted, without kind of spoiling things, like what the relationships were, what was going to be revealed, and how it was going to all kind of culminate into this big kind of epic ending. And so it was just a great just a great experience to work in this different medium. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the emotional beats because the emotional beats are incredibly strong and they're very well-defined. Within each episode, of course, there is the overarching emotional beat of our hero, Heron. Uh, and his emotional beats, it, it, like with anybody, coming, in, coming of age, coming into their own. And something that's very interesting is I notice a difference in the, how he is animated. There is a difference in his body structure, um, in his animation, as we go through the eight episodes. That, that's Sean. And the artist, you know, obviously, uh, Sean, the director, and the artist. But that is subtle. I can tell you took 27 pages of notes because you didn't miss anything. Yeah, that's very astute. Uh, (laughs) And they wanted just a a subtle shading of him coming into his own, becoming who he is, this idea of, you know, and it's in the trailer that he's the son of Zeus, so this isn't a spoiler, but if he's a demigod, does he have divine strength in him? and what that imbues and what that means as you come into yourself. Um, you know, at, at that age, finding out those types of things has a huge impact on anyone. It's someone in modern-day society, let alone back then or in this world where everything is more heightened. But it's amazing that you picked up on that, Debbie. That's, uh, that's actually very impressive, I have to say. Oh, that, that just blew my mind when I saw that. And I'm like, oh, my... And it makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. And the attention to use of color. Use of color is very, very key throughout this series. Not only for colors that identify each character, each god. Because you bring in and you introduce us to gods and supporters of the gods who are lesser known that we don't that we rarely hear about unless you're really studying uh, mythology. You don't hear about Hephaestus that often. A lot of people, I don't think, have ever heard of Seraphim uh, 
except if they watch Sister Act in one of the hymns they sing. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so <laughs> it's funny, you know, because you always are trying to balance. Like we loved the Onery, the Dream Gods, uh, mm-hmm. and we always thought they were fascinating. And so, you know, part of it is everyone knows the Pantheon, I think, or at least they they have some knowledge of, of most of the Pantheon. But we wanted to kind of deep dive and and explore some of these lesser known nooks and crannies. Um, but then you always worry, like, are we too inside baseball? Um, so I'm, I'm glad it seems like you responded to that and you, you enjoyed that. And then what I'll say, again, just a great tribute to, you know, Sean, our director and the amazing artist at, um, at Powerhouse, is Power. that you have to then make them stand out and be unique so that it helps you remember them. Because there's a lot of characters in this. This is a pretty broad cast. This is dense. Uh, it is yeah. dense. It is as dense as the Olympian's family tree. Um, it really is. Um, and there are a lot of familiar characters, and we're not going to give away any spoilers, but I think it's safe to say there will be a lot of familiar characters that people that have seen the, you know, Ray Harryhausen's work and Jason of the Argonauts and things like that. You're going to be watching this and go, oh, I know what that is. I know what that is. Um, I, and I love that because there are touchstones in every episode. Um, touchstones. I love that you picked that up. You're, you're making our director smile now because you did an homage to the, the, the films that you referenced. And so he's really going to be smiling now. And again, very astute on your part to to recognize those oh so there's some come on there's some of my favorite films my dad and i would watch them you know come on mr channel six yeah you watched them um debbie that's so great because a lot of us all the time we watched you know jason and the argonauts and sinbad isn't greek mythology but we would you know we watch all those movies with our father and uh probably on the same stations in new jersey as you did and uh, come on, nothing existed just... Nothing existed but for Channel 6. Don't you know that? Uh, that's right. You know. It was that. Channel 6, and then they had Kung Fu on Channel 11, and those were well, the two things we always watched. Well, you know, Action News was on <laughs> Channel 6, and, you know, WFIL became WPVI. Um, you know, the old man, he, Tubby was there for 60 years. Wow. And my, bro- my brother is over at PHL. He's over at 17. He's been there, I think, I think he's somewhere in the mid-30, 35 years, 37 years, something like that. Good for him. That's great. But those those movies, uh, you just gravitate, and anything that that links, those are the things that spark your memories. And in your creation of Blood of Zeus, that's what you do, and you and you, you, you play to that. Even if it's just for yeah. a moment, it's something yeah. that is resonant and clicks in your mind. And, and it I makes l- you feel good. It, it brings you back to that time in your life. It makes you feel good. And, you know, how nice is it to see something that it actually kind of makes you, like, makes you smile. It's almost like kind of like a, a warm blanket. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> Wait a minute. Was, was that a veiled hint that you want one of my one of my lockdown crochet blankets I keep making? <laughs> <laughs> I bet they're cozy. So I've heard. 
I just keep giving them away to fr- to, to people. Uh, How many have you made so far? Uh, wow. I'm on number 15 right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, good for you. I'm on you know, no- it's been longer. I remember the talk of, like, this will be over by Memorial Day, and, you know, production will be back in the summer, and it just hasn't shaken out like that for a variety of reasons. That's crazy. But I've got to ask you, one, when you write these episodes— um, so often, there's so many writers and creators that when they write, they give very explicit visual direction along with the dialogue. I'm curious, how explicit were you, because this is animated, and you knew that going in, that it was going to be anime, how explicit was your direction in terms of what the visuals would be, and if you were specifying uh, signature colors such as eye color or even lightning bolt color, because that does shift at certain moments and get gold tinges to it. Um, so I'm curious if you guys dug in that deeply as writers and well, creators. Was, we, we did. We just had a great working relationship with the director and everyone involved. So there, there were times where it, it, most often it was very... It, it was written in the script to be a certain way. And then we would discuss that. And then maybe Sean had, you know what, why don't we try this? Why don't we do this? Or maybe he would even introduce a scene that wasn't there, a moment. He would craft a moment. So it was always an ongoing discussion between us, Sean, the director, and, and the creative team, the storyboard artists and the artists in general. So, you know, but we were involved the whole way through from, as you mentioned, what the what the um, the Biden would look like? What what the swords would look like? You know the, the facial expressions of the different actors, their their eye color, all of that matters. And I do like that you noticed an episode. Well, I don't want to say what episode. Don't say but, the episode. You know, there's an episode. Yeah, but there's before before a fire, the the colors are, are are cold. They're blue. So then when there is a fire, that really pops out. And I'm glad that you noticed that. And that is again something that was pre-planned. Yeah, and, and the other, only other thing I would add to that is that you know certain things, you know, eye color is a kind of a story point in a certain segment of the show, mm-hmm. and we also come from the school of writing. Now, some people believe in a, a very white page where you you keep your exposition and prose as sparse as possible, but we also believe that when we write action, we need to have that evoke some kind of response mm-hmm. in the reader, and there are times we were very specific. But like Vlas mentioned, uh, so we always try and, and write something very specific and try and come up with something that we think is cool. But then what was always great yeah. is that you know, we would sit down, talk with Sean. Sean would kind of bring his board artists. They would also break it down. We would pitch ideas, go back and forth. And so it, it, was, it was a great always kind of back and forth process. And what we said is that the best stuff always came from when we would play tennis where we would you know, kind of go back and forth and, well, what about this or what about this? And what if we take that and combine it with this? And so that was the part that was also really kind of gratifying, too, and just a lot of fun, and we think led to, to the best results. I mean, totally agree with that. So, so it starts off very specific, but mm-hmm. it's not in a way that's constrained, right. in a way that's suffocating. We want people to give us their honest opinion on things. One thing we don't want people to do is to censor themselves. There are no bad ideas. Share with us how you feel. Be open and creative, and we try to create that type of an environment, um, you know, in the office. And, and it really, I think it worked well for us. Yeah. When we were still going into the office. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when you were still going into the office. 
Um, how did you, because there are, and this is, this I pondered throughout my entire four and a half hours of watching and since, how did you decide on the gods, demigods, and supporting players to include? Because there was such a plethora that you could have picked from. I'm curious how you decided who to bring in to these tales, who to have on the periphery. And nobody is really on the periphery here. Everyone who is a named character is important in this, in this series. And I love that. And you also use a lot of, quote-unquote, the supporting players to provide some humor. Because you have some really funny stuff written. I got to tell you. There are some one-liners that are great. The one-liners are always Vlas. Whenever there's a good one-liner, it's always Vlas. Oh, you're a funny boy. You're a funny boy. Oh, yeah. No, it's always always a collaboration, always. And and thank God, again, we're we're working now from a place, and we've just grown as writers, Charlie and I. And we've also grown, I think, you know, spiritually. So it's. It's, it's again. It's not about ego. It's what's what's in the best interest, and and that's what I love working with my brother. He's always going to give it to me straight. He's going to be honest. So I know if like if he's happy, then oh, it's like a big relief because I feel really good about it. And now I, I don't know if Charlie feels this way. I bet he does. But now I also kind of feel that way with Sean. You know, we we kind of want to make him happy, and when he does feel happy, it's like oh good that affirmation. Okay, we're 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 moving down. You know, the, the right track. Right here. path. Um, yeah, so it's um, but but I think it's it's you know you know Charlie talks about this and I'll, I'll pass the baton to him the Nolan thing, but before we even get into that to answer your question like why choose these characters mm-hmm. before we even got to that we just kind of okay here are our characters we want to know our characters inside and out and then we do what you know Sorkin does and we say okay what does our character want and then how they go about getting that defines character so we spend a lot of time thinking about. What does Heron want? What does Hera want? What does Zeus want? And then the, the, the story started evolving from that, just really knowing what the characters want. And then the ones that kind of moved to the forefront were the ones that had like, the greatest wants. And then we said, okay, we need to kind of hone in on these characters. But I always love, bro, what you bring up with Nolan. Um, that may be interesting. Well, part of it, um, Christopher Nolan always says that if you can find a story where four, you know, three or four characters are involved in conflict and each have different points of view mm-hmm. about that conflict, he said the story writes itself. And for us, without kind of getting into spoilers, it's you know Zeus and Hera and Heron and Seraphim. And uh, in terms of what characters we chose and what gods to, to choose. Uh, some of it is just pure function of what their role was in Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't think this is a spoiler in any way, but Hermes, one of his duties was to go around and collect souls and bring them to the underworld. Um, so he becomes kind of more of a prominent part. And we tried to focus on the ones we thought people would most want to see or are most well-known. We knew we had to have Poseidon uh, you know, in there as well. Uh, people love Ares, the god of war. And then part of it is that kind of always you know, kind of an homage to Greek mythology, like like someone has to bring news to a character about the future, and that's what Apollo was most known for, and that's why the, the Oracle of Delphi was in the tel- Temple of Apollo. So when we said, all right, well, which character is going to intercede and bring this information to this, to this character? Well, let's just 
probably no one will get it or someone studying for a classics PhD might be like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's interesting because that's what Apollo does in, in Greek mythology. You know, um, so always just trying to honor that and trying to go with, Sean said it once, he goes, just be honest with me, guys. Like, this is just an homage to all the stuff you guys loved as kids. He's like, yeah, that, that's, that's what this is. Do you each what have... I would add... Go ahead. Go what ahead. I would add to that, what I would what I would add to that too, I think sometimes, you know, with regards to the honing in process, it, it stems from theme too. One of the themes that we wanted to explore and, and not gonna give any spoilers away is how anger affects people. Some people anger can destroy them, some people have anger and then are able to let it go and then overcome the adversity. So we explore that with different characters and we want to show how harmful it can be. So then if that becomes like, okay, this is a theme that we really like, okay, which characters can best express that theme? So that also played into it. Mm -hmm. No, because I love, as I said before, I love the selection of characters, but I was curious how you, you know, how you came up with them out of everybody that you could have picked. Um, <laughs> and even your... We're going to call the Oracle. We're going to come to you. And we're like, hey, Oracle, <laughs> what do you think here about this story? What characters should we focus in on? And, you know, there are some really incredible supporting players that you introduce us to as well that I don't think people will be surprised by if they have seen all of those Jason and the Argonauts and, and Clash of the Titans and things like that. Um, and I think they're going to cheer when they see some of them and go, I know who that is. Um, do you each have a favorite Greek god? <laughs> Someone asked us that the other day, and, and, and what, 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 we, what, I don't know how Charlie feels exactly, but you know, like it's like saying like, which is your favorite child? You know, which is your favorite character? We we, we love them all, and we love them all for, for for different reasons. So that's a hard one for me to answer. That's a me, cop out. I always love Zeus. Zeus, and he's always <laughs> my favorite. And I know, you know, he he was, you know. Again, very flawed, you know, especially through the lens of 2020, he's incredibly flawed. Uh, but I was always kind of taken by him because what I always thought was interesting is that there's times where he's this great hero in mythology. There, there's times like, you know, when Olympus gets attacked by Typhon, he's the only one that stays and fights and everyone else runs away. And so he would do these great heroic things, but then he would also be an idiot, too. And I just always thought that was fascinating and then I always just, as a kid, was struck when I heard, you know, thunder and lightning, and, uh, you know, I would think of Zeus. So for me, just on a personal level, I've always just had an affinity for Zeus, and he's, he's my favorite. Uh, but they're, like Vlad said, they're all so cool, you know, and, uh, we, you know, I love Poseidon. I love, I love all of them. Uh, it's, just, it's just great. And, and the other thing I will say when we talk about the gods, some of them we introduced because we hope if we get a chance to tell a second season, they're big parts of that story so that's also part of the reason we chose some of that now again we you know netflix is only committed to the first season but that is part of the reason you will see more of them in future seasons god willing if, if we get a chance no there has to be there has to be a season two uh, <laughs> uh, there has to be a season two i i am just i am rabid you know people know that know me and the follow they know I am a diehard Yellowstone fan. That is that nothing tops for years while the last ship was on. It was the last ship and my friend Bren Foster and Yellowstone. You know, I am as rabid for Blood of Zeus as as those two. 
writer, Yellowstone, everything he's done on the feature oh. side, and now Yellowstone Great. is incredible. That's yeah. high praise, Debbie. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm very, I'm very serious. I am, but this is, I have to watch it again. Um, oh. just because it is so well done. And I have to say, I love, I love your animators. I have to compliment the beautiful, beautiful animation of Olympus. Uh, oh. Olympus in the wide shots, in the, in the, in the panoramic shots where you get the overview is so stunning and light and bright with just pops of color here and there set against the white columns and the water coming down fountains and coming down the mountain. So gorgeous. And it really distinguishes itself from everything else we see throughout the series. Um, I'll tell you, Debbie, there's an artist uh, in Austin, Texas at Powerhouse, Jesse Piles, and he was the one that would do the initial pass on every location. And Sean, our director, had told him, like, listen, I want every time we go someplace new to feel like we're walking into this brand new world. But any time Jesse had new designs for us to look at, it was like Christmas morning. Like, we couldn't wait to open up the link and see, like, you know, what he, because he just did amazing. Oh, I, so true. I mean, I so love true. all the animation and I love the hard lines that we get with this particular anime style. But that contrast of seeing Mount Olympus at a distance, um, as us mere mortals looking up at it, um, it is so beautiful and delicate um, in comparison to everything else. So it really does set itself apart from the world, from the Poli, from the, the other mountains. I thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, and I, I just have to, after hearing that, again, thank Sean, because he is the one that really took the time and really pushed himself. And in pushing himself, he led by example. He's probably the first guy we've ever come across that works, that works harder than, than even we do. And because he leads by example, and he <clears throat> always just he didn't compromise, like, no, we can do better. We can plus this. We can do better. He approached everything, every shot, every frame. So the Olympus and how it's depicted, you know, that stemmed from him just pushing all the artists. Let's let's try to do something here that we haven't seen before. And Charlie and I do that, you know, from a writing level. We always ask ourselves, well, what haven't we seen before? And, you know, there's there's so many shows out there. There's so many movies out there. What haven't we seen before? That's important. And so that kind of philosophy was also applied to you know, uh, Sean shared that with, with the artist, and he pushed everyone to do their absolute best work as he pushed himself. And so he was the leader, you know, in, in, in the visual component of it, and, and we're very proud of it, and thank you for pointing it out. And I have to say, the use of chorale music representing a quote-unquote Greek choir <laughs> is just stunning throughout. The I've always looked. I've, you know, like that's been something that I've been always a huge fan of. And Paul Francis, our composer, he just nailed it. And I'm, I'm so very, very proud of the score. And I feel I love the choral components of it. I love the epic component of it. I love the vulnerability and the sensitive and, and the feminine component of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't be more thrilled, um, you know, with, with the score. 
Well, and I would be remiss not to tell everybody, watch through the credits. Watch through the credits. The end credits, people. You get to see the storyboarding process and all of these uh, bits and pieces of the characters and uh, being created from the first magic marker, you know, round (laughs) oval face. It is incredible. As As creative as the opening titles are, the end credits, I encourage you to watch them all the way through. And it That's will... amazing, Debbie, because we know you screen like, I don't know how many dozens of movies a week, and you know that you watch them as well. That's awesome. I, I, I watch credits all the way through. Um, wow. I find it disrespectful to not. Good for, you. Um, good for you. Because everybody has worked really hard, whether a product is good, bad, or indifferent. That's right. Those people whose names on those credits have worked so hard, and so it, you know, you deserve to sit there. They deserve to have somebody sit there and watch to see their work, especially with the the quote unquote Easter egg kind of end titles that we get. Which of course, yeah, there's, there's character sheets that show how the characters evolve, like uh, early designs, and and how then we eventually kind of land on. You know, it's kind of meant to show the progression. And, and early animatics, which are, you know, basically it looks like it's just those are done on iPads, and they're just, uh, you know, they use those little, like, you know, pencils. Um, and so you can see the whole process evolve. And, and one, we just wanted to pay tribute because so many people work on this and work into bringing yep. this to life. And their work is the bedrock to what the final product is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, no one ever gets to see it. And we wanted to highlight some of that. And Sean wanted to really do that for all the, the crew members that worked so hard on, on the show. Yeah, I, you know, I, it was, I love it. Was it. your idea, bro. Like, you had mentioned it. You said, maybe we can do something like The Mandalorian. And yeah, I was The again, Mandalorian. Oh, how yeah, can yeah. we even make it even better than that? And when Sean heard that, it was great. And, you know, what? You know, I'm so glad you mentioned it, Deb. Like, it's like people work so hard hard on this we wanted to give them a little shout out and say hey here's their work because they they they, they put all this time and effort into into the show and, and really handled it with care and, and love so um very glad i'm just very glad to hear you say that and, and of course you mentioned you know the all-important the mandalorian um oh, and and you know we get more baby yoda Pam is yeah. sitting in the booth, and Pam's <laughs> going to start laughing because she knows of my Baby Yoda obsession. Um, <laughs> Baby Yoda debuts on the 30th. Blood of Zeus yeah. debuts at 12.01 tonight yeah. on Netflix. It's so a good week to be a nerd. It is a really good week. <laughs> this is, these shows, this is going to get you through the final week leading up to the election. Oh, I don't even want to think about it. Uh, Hope so. Yeah. We need all the help we can get. And and I I still believe very strongly in America. I believe this is a wonderful country. I'm very proud. We're very proud to be American. Our family came here as immigrants, and and we very much live the American dream. And it just hurts to see the country and the state that it's in, and, and hopefully we can start to move forward again, God willing. That's hopefully, no matter which side of the fence you're on. Yeah, that's that's the key. Move forward. Yeah, you know, everybody just needs like a weekend at the Jersey Shore. That's <laughs> you know, go hit with your keychain. Maybe with the keychain, that'll help a little too. You know, just go hit seaside, hit the boardwalk, 
You know, and everything, you know, ride the new roller coaster, which I haven't I haven't been there to ride yet since Hurricane Sandy, but I'm sure it's not as good as the one that landed in the ocean. Um, but I think everybody just needs to go to the Jersey Shore for a weekend, play in the arcade. <laughs> and that'll... We would love that. Charlie and I would love that. If we could ever, we had an excuse to go back to New Jersey. You are talking, you know, things that we would absolutely love to do. And we try to get back as much as we can. It's been a little challenging now with COVID, but we hear you loud and clear. Charlie knows I'm desperately trying to to get a house um, down there right in Forked River, right there near where my grandparents' house is. Uh, So I have a very small area. I'm talking teeny tiny area that I'm looking at. Um, wow. so it's very, it's been very hard to find anything because there's still, because wow. a lot of the homes there, a lot of them are those small bungalow types that were built in the fifties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, that's what, exactly. you know what our brother has said, who's still in the area. He said that because yeah. everyone's fleeing New York, he goes, houses are selling so fast yep. out there. It's, it's unbelievable. And you know, what's kind of interesting. You were mentioning Taylor Sheridan, um, the producer uh, who produced um, Sicario and the other movie that he wrote and direct on the Indian Reservation, which was a great film. Uh, mm-hmm. Basil I. Wanner, who produced those movies that you know Taylor wrote, he just moved back to Jersey. He's like, I'm done. He's like, <laughs> I think it's like one son is in high school, the other's in college. He's like, and he moved to Jersey and he's working from New Jersey now. And I'm like, Basil, you're yeah. doing you know what we all say we want to do, and he actually got up and did it. He left yeah, that's like, I. I want to be sitting there on my on Lake Barnegat, right there, <laughs> then go to the go to the diner, the Forked River Diner on Route Nine. Uh-huh. You know uh-huh. that's. That's you know that's my dream is to get back there and just Aww. do those little things and just work from there. There is amazing. Those little things matter. But those things, those little things, make life worth living. I love it. I well, I need the diner just to get Manhattan clam chowder soup and fried flounder. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know you can't get it here in L.A. No, the good fried flounder. I worked at the Berkeley Fish Market for like four or five years growing up, high school and college. And just good fried flounder with some tartar sauce. Oh, oh man. Oh, you can't beat it. oh my <laughs> God. Yes. Yes. Okay, now you've ruined me for the whole week, Charlie. Because that's all I'm going to think about that I want. You know, fine. Well, we are, before Pam just gives me an evil eye in there, because we have gone a half an hour, oh. o- we've went a half oh. an hour over the show, which she knew I was going to do. So it was no surprise because it's you guys. So <laughs> thank you. Um, but uh, again, if there is one reason for a parting note for the audience, guys, what is the one reason that each of you would say they should watch Blood of Zeus? If you, you ever want to go wanted first, to- bro. Be something like Lord of the Rings, but in the world of Greek mythology, or Game of Thrones in the world of Greek mythology. Uh, this is that thing. This is that dream come true, at least for us. And we hope that if you just want to unplug from the world, this is the way to do it for at least a few hours. And I would, I would concur. If, if you love Lord of the Rings, if you love Star Wars, if you love escapist type fare, something that's going to entertain you, move you emotionally, and then at the end of the day, 
inspire you, make you feel good about yourself and hopefully a little bit better about the world. This is a show to watch. Well, it, it is just one, one of the best shows that's going to be on television. That's all I can say. So, oh, we appreciate that means a lot, Kai Thank you. That's awesome. Well, Charlie, you know, if I thought it sucked, I would say it. So, <laughs> I, know, I know that's why <laughs> it's really, you know, it, it means the world to us that you're saying that. And we're very proud of it, but you know, you just, you, like Spielberg says, the audience tells you what it is. And so, you know, it's just great to hear that feedback from you. We're really excited about it, and, and we love that you love it, and we hope people enjoy it. And it's so hard to talk yeah. about it when we can't give spoilers out. but we skirted them so good Uh. yeah you're very good at this my goodness you know we're on here for a while fantastic great work did it surprise you though like the one one of the bigger ones did it surprise you debbie what did you kind of think that maybe oh i can kind of see where this is going no i i did not i was not pre the ultimate predetermination i had but the things in between, there were a lot of surprises in there. Oh, good, good. Oh, oh that's good. That's, um, that's the feedback we're best. getting, and that's very gratifying. Um, that I think very positive. it's not giving away a spoiler to say I was very, very surprised with Seraphim. That's cool. Great, um, great, great. I was yeah. not surprised at Hera, only because I do know so much about the mythology of Hera <laughs> and all the incarnations that, that there have been about her. Um, so I wasn't surprised by her, but Seraphim, very surprising and very enjoyable watching the surprises. Good. That's oh, great. that's great. That's great. That's great. And, and yeah, he's, he's, sorry. Go ahead, Vlas. He's what? No, 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 no. He's one of our favorite characters. Oh, know, okay. Um, no doubt. Well, see now for season two, you can give me more K-Ron. I'll be happy with that. K-Ron in the River Sticks. There's a reason why it's kind of funny. The last thing I'll say is that there's a shot of the underworld and you see the five different realms. Yep. And, uh, and you know, we were not a project that had an unlimited budget. And Sean kind of said, like, hey, guys, we're, you know, we're kind of like we're getting to our deadline. How important is this shot? And we kind of explained what we had hoped to do in uh, season two and how it involves that underworld. All right, I'll find a way. Don't worry. And it ended up like while he went on a vacation, he was actually drawing that and doing that panning yeah. shot. Oh. And uh, we just give Sean all the credit in the world because, like, you know, one, once we explained to him on a story level why we wanted to at least, like, introduce that so that when we, God willing, go there in season two, he's like, no, 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 then that's important. We need to make a, a point of it. Mm-hmm. And then he, he did the work. Even though he was in Hawaii, he was doing it. And so uh, we're very thankful to him for that. And, you know... If you had the budget of the MCU, you could have had nine realms like Thor. <laughs> we couldn't afford the doors, the nine realms of the Evertree. We couldn't afford it. They do an amazing job, though. I give yeah. them all the credit in the world. Well, guys, I hate it, but I must bid you adieu, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for coming on the show today so we could talk about Blood of Zeus and everything in between. This has been thank you. so Sentiment much fun. Mutual. You guys are going to come back on the show again, aren't you? We would love to. We'd you love just to. tell us when. Okay. Absolutely. I'll find a time after people have had a chance to see Blood of Zeus, maybe in a couple months. Then what? That sounds great. Guys, 
Charlie, Vlaz, thank you. thank you so much, and I will talk to you guys soon. Our pleasure. Bye. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, thank you for having awesome. us. Thanks, care. guys. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Bye-bye. And that is, yes, I warned you all. I warned you on social media we were going to run late today with, with Charlie and Vlaz. It's a treat to have them. Blood of Zeus, I can't recommend it highly enough. Radium Girls, fabulous film. And, of course, Baby Yoda is back on October 30th. The wait is over. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 